Welcome to the Antioch Word, a podcast for the Antioch College community. My name is Mary Evans, and I'm the 2018 Miller Fellow at WISF. Today you will hear Episode 3 of Antioch College's first Freedom to Vote Rally. Myla Cooper, Vice President for Diversity and Inclusion and Executive Director of the Coretta Scott King Center at Antioch College, emceed this event. Special guest, civil rights activist Sean King, shares the importance of voting. I want to jump right in, and I'm glad that I was preceded by uh, two enthusiastic speakers who charged the audience because I made up in my mind that today I wouldn't necessarily be here to inspire you, but would be here to give you some instructions. I wanted you to be able to leave here today with, some, with a, a clear understanding of what's next for you. I, I accept the idea, like this notion that we go vote. I, I embrace that idea, but I want to add some structure to what that means and what we do with that privilege. I want to I tell a personal story, a very transparent personal story, and then I want to hop right in to uh, really what is the meat of a new book that I'm writing called How to Make Change. And I'm going to give you four really concrete things that we can do together to make change here in Ohio and all over the country. Uh, in the summer of 2014, um, I was not really the Sean King that you know now. I didn't, have a, I didn't have verified social media accounts. I wasn't known as an organizer or as an activist. I was actually working at an environmental charity in Southern California called Global Green. And uh, I had been an organizer before. One of my college classmates, one of my best friends from Morehouse, I mean, we organized. Uh, in 1999, I was student government president at Morehouse. And actually, when I was government president at Morehouse, Andrew Gillum was student government president at FAMU. And uh, we used to clown because, like, I wore jeans and a t-shirt, and he was wearing suits even in college. Like, we used to clown him and call him mayor and stuff even back then. So he's been, he's been doing that. But in 1999, when I was a student at Morehouse, a young brother named Amadou Diallo was shot and killed and uh, shot 41 times on the doorstep of his home unarmed, nonviolent, beautiful brother from an amazing family who committed no crime, made no mistake, didn't disobey a single order. And that was, for many of us at Morehouse, that was our introduction into this movement against police violence. And we organized. We actually, a, a group of us, went from Atlanta to New York and marched and, and organized with local uh, groups there in New York. In 2006, I organized when a young brother named Sean Bell was killed in New York, shot 50 times on his wedding day. Another unarmed, nonviolent black man literally leaving his bachelor party. But I got married, I have kids, and um, found myself not really doing a lot of the civil rights work that I did as a college student, as a youth leader. And I found myself working, I was the director of communications at this charity, Global Green. And uh, something weird happens because when you graduate college and you all go your own separate ways, your classmates will always know you for who you were in college. And so what happened, when I left college, all of my college classmates always knew me as Sean the activist, or Sean the person who organized around police brutality. And I kid you not, like I'm, I confess, I had kind of moved on from that. But every time, I, I just moved into raising my family, and I was not doing active work around police violence. Every time there was a case of police brutality, my friends from Morehouse would always reach back out to me. In the summer of 2014, I was at my cubicle, and we had a, an office in Santa Monica overlooking 
Pacific Ocean, a corporate, cushy job, doing good work, but not the work that I'm doing now. And a buddy of mine who lived in New York says, Sean, there's a video right now on YouTube. And so much has happened in the past four years. Like the history books, you may know me as someone from social media, but I'm a historian by training. My undergraduate and graduate degrees are in, are in history. History will really look back on these years as being a, a deep decline in ethics and morality, integrity, and, and in a steep increase in hate and violence. In 2014, I had never seen a fatal video of police violence. I'd never seen that with my own eyes. And uh, my buddy of mine, who was from Morehouse, sent me this video and he said, Sean, there's something awful on YouTube and you gotta see it. He wasn't writing Sean the cubicle guy, he was writing Sean the activist he knew from Morehouse. And I had the thought, I'm at my cubicle surrounded by people that I didn't think would understand what I was looking at. I had the thought that I might not even click on that link. He described an, a middle-aged, unarmed, we didn't know the guy's name yet, a middle-aged, unarmed black man. He said, Sean, the guy looks like he's maybe in his mid-40s. And he said, he's begging the police to leave him alone. And he's telling the police, I didn't do anything. And come to find out, he actually didn't do anything. And um, he says, Sean, an officer comes up behind this guy and begins choking him. And he says, Sean, the officer wrestles the guy to the ground and continues to choke him. And he said, man, you can hear on the video the guy yell out, I can't breathe, I can't breathe. He says, Sean, the guy says it a dozen times. And he says, if you watch the video long enough, and the whole video rarely made the news. He said, if you watch the video long enough, the brother dies right there on the sidewalk. I'm at my cubicle, and I'm thinking, I don't even know if I wanna see this myself. I click on the link. And it was the man that we later came to know as Eric Garner, literally breathing his last breath on the, on the sidewalk. And I can't explain what happened, but an email that was so random ended up being a pivotal moment in my entire life. I was so shook up by what I saw that literally right there at that moment, I had the thought, who do I call? What, what do I do? And literally the only thing I knew to do was to figure out, see now there are apps that help you illegally download videos from YouTube, but back then that was actually really difficult to do. There are apps for that now, but I had to teach myself how to get that video from YouTube and upload it to Facebook. I didn't have a public Facebook account, I mean just to my friends. And my thought was somebody who knows me is gonna know what to do about this. And I posted the video with a detailed description of what I saw and within a day, that video was being shared all over the world. The next day, I literally did not go to work trying to figure out, okay, this has to be against the rules, the law, and we found out that the chokehold had been banned for 10 years. So I thought, okay, we got this. This is, this is open and shut. Then we found out the officer who killed Eric Garner had constant run-ins with people, had been sued multiple times, had multiple behavioral incidents, and then the coroner came back and ruled the death, death by asphyxiation, and said it was a murder. And so in my mind, at my cubicle, we were going to organize and fight for justice and get it. And so for the next three weeks, in July of 2014, all I did was try to break down, just on my Facebook page, what I saw happening and unfolding with the case of Eric Garner. 
And those stories would often be shared and even quoted in mainstream press all over the world. I came to know Eric Garner's family, his daughters, his wife, his mother, and others. And three weeks later, a young brother here in Ohio, John Crawford, was shot and killed by police at a Walmart. And I learned how beautiful and brilliant this young man was, and I saw the video and I had the thought, oh, that's wrong. That's definitely wrong. The next day we learned about the shooting death of Mike Brown in Ferguson, Missouri. And in a span of three weeks, not just the country, but all over the world, you have to, it's gonna be hard to think back because at Trump's election, I swear it feels like he's been president for 10 years. Like he has an ability to slow down time. Every day seems like a, a month with him. And yeah, <laughs> Mark says Satan. <laughs> yeah, no, no, to, to make pain feel long is what, absolutely. And so, but there was a moment in 2014 that was almost pre-Trump where he had not announced his candidacy. He existed as a figure, but he was really just, a, he was still hosting The Apprentice he was still making appearances on, on Monday Night Raw for WWE. Like he was still just seen as a joke. And for this month in July and August of 2014, police violence and these stories dominated news all over the world. And we began organizing in cities, on college campuses, in towns, all over the country. Hundreds of college campuses, hundreds of cities, and people all over the world began chanting the phrase, for the first time, Black Lives Matter. And I did something, and, and I wanna tell this story and reveal, it's, it, it, it is, I have regret that I did it, but when I did it, I did it with my whole heart. I came to know these families it, that November, again, here in Ohio, that November, while we were fighting for justice for Eric Garner, for Mike Brown and for John Crawford, we got news that a 12-year-old boy had been shot and killed just a few blocks from his mother's house. I can't explain to you, but there was a naivete where all of us in each of these cities, in Cleveland, throughout Ohio, in New York, in Ferguson, we thought we were going to get justice. And I met, the, I met Tamir's mother, I met, I met Mike Brown's family, I met Eric Garner's family, and I said something to each of them that I, that I regret. I looked at them closer than I, I looked at them at, on, at kitchen tables and said, listen, don't worry, hang in there. We're going to get justice for your family. And Mark, when I said it, I, I did not have even, I did not have a single thought in my mind that we weren't going to get justice. I saw how organized we were. I saw the effort and the energy that was being put into it. And when I looked at those mothers and family members and said, listen, don't worry, I, hang in there, we're going to get justice. I never considered that the following month in December, basically the bottom would fall out and we'd learn there would be no justice for Eric Garner. And when I say no justice, I mean the officer didn't even lose his job. It wasn't like we went to court and lost. He was never arrested, it never even went to court. We I could not fathom in my mind that we wouldn't even really have a chance at justice. And to this very day, Officer Daniel Pantaleo still works for the NYPD, and the federal government and our city government, our liberal democratic government in New York, still says it's under investigation. What the hell are you investigating? It was on film and happened four years ago. 
I actually asked and filled out a, a, an official request for them to document for me exactly what they were investigating and didn't get a response back. Dude, I wanted them to show me the minutes. Since you said it's still under investigation, what did you do yesterday? You're listening to Episode 3 of Antioch College's first Freedom to Vote rally on the Antioch Word. Next, civil rights activist Sean King continues to tell us the impact of police violence and how these injustices pushed him to seek answers. Investigation? What the hell are you investigating? It was on film and happened four years ago. I actually asked and filled out a, a, an official request for them to document for me exactly what they were investigating and didn't get a response back. Dude, I wanted them to show me the minutes. Since you said it's still under investigation, what did you do yesterday on this investigation that you say is still open? And I found myself in January of 2015 in one of the deepest funks I think I'd ever been in in my life. I quit my job at Global Green with no idea how I was gonna provide for myself. And just like you stepped out of school, hundreds of us all over the country literally quit our jobs, jumped out of school and just said, we are in a moment in history and we have to fight for this. And I had never fought so hard for something for so many months and lost. And it hurt. I, I, at the time, was not seeing a therapist, but I, I am absolutely sure I was in a deep depression. And we actually lost the lives, including of activists right here in Ohio, of activists who were in such a deep funk that they did not know how to endure it and took their own lives. And then a few months later, Freddie Gray was killed in Baltimore. Sandra Bland was in January of 2015 in one of the deepest funks I think I'd ever been in in my life. I quit my job at Global Green with no idea how I was gonna provide for myself. And just like you stepped out of school, hundreds of us all over the country literally quit our jobs, jumped out of school and just said, we are in a moment in history and we have to fight for this. And I had never fought so hard for something for so many months and lost. And it hurt. I, I, at the time, was not seeing a therapist, but I, I am absolutely sure I was in a deep depression. And we actually lost the lives, including of activists right here in Ohio, of activists who were in such a deep funk that they did not know how to endure it and took their own lives. And then a few months later, Freddie Gray was killed in Baltimore. Sandra Bland was, was killed in Texas. Then we saw Philando Castile be murdered by a police officer on Facebook Live. We saw Alton Sterling shot and killed by an officer right in front of the dollar store there. Listen, the officer, this just came out this past week, the officer who shot and killed uh, Alton Sterling literally had been reprimanded three months prior, just came out this past week, and in his record, his supervising officer said he believed the officer who killed Alton Sterling, he believed him to be nearly crazy. Quote, his supervising officer said he was nearly crazy. Three months later, he kills Alton Sterling. Then we see this public rise of hate across the country, the election of Donald Trump, 
And I had to ask myself, is there something wrong with how we're fighting for change? Because I kid you not, I probably met nearly 100 families affected by police brutality. And from 2014, just until a few weeks ago, every single family I fought for lost their cases. Over 100 families. In fact, from 2014 until yesterday, it's almost 4,000 people who've been killed by police in this country. And it took me down a path of asking, how do we actually fight for change and win? Because I, I learned a painful lesson that a lot of what we were doing was good and necessary, but did not necessarily lead to change. Every time we marched, we were right to march. Every time we protested, we were right to protest. Every sit-in, every die-in, every event like this, every single one of them, we were right to have it. And what I learned is this country and the systems in, in this country are fully willing to watch us do all those things and make sure nothing happens about it. Absolutely. I just want to be clear on that. that it is entirely possible that we could have Black Lives Matter, Women's March, and March for Our Lives and not see a damn thing happen. It is entirely possible. And I want to lean in for a minute with some painful insight that I've learned that really took me about four years to get the lessons that I want to teach you for just a few moments. And there are a few of you who understand it, and if you do, I hope it confirms for you what you already know. But others of you maybe didn't know what I'm about to tell you, and this is really for you. There, there are at least four things you need to make change happen. The first thing, we often, ha we have it all the time, and it often convinces us that change is right on the horizon. The first thing that you need to make, when I say change, I mean deep systemic change, change the law, change culture. I'm talking about huge shifts. I'm talking about the abolition of slavery. I'm talking about women's rights to vote. I'm talking about the, the Civil Rights Act. I'm talking about you know deep systemic change. There are at least four things that you need in 2018 to make those things happen. The first thing is that you need people and they need to be highly energized. You need, to, you need people, and they need to be highly energized. And I start there because we actually do that really, really well. You need, like, this is, a, this is an example. The Women's March is an example. March for Our Lives is an example. Black Lives Matter is an example. You need people, and they need to be on fire for change. And, and when I say energized, I'm it, it has to be deep in your soul because you will experience highs and lows, you will experience failure, you will, you will hit a wall, you will experience loss, and you need to be so energized for change that when you experience all of those things, you still come out it on the other side still wanting change. And you need people, and they need to be energized. But here's what I have noticed. We often get people, and they are energized. I mean, pumped 
charged, ready for change. We often get that and we're like, yo, we're about to change the world. And I get it because you basically, uh, Mark, you used a Marvel reference, and so I'm going to use a Marvel reference. You know, in the new Avengers, there are all these jewels that he has to, like, energize people is like one of the jewels in, in, in the glove. Like, you need energized people, and when we get it, it can convince you that that's all you need. I want to tell you right now, and this is a very hard thing for me to say, but if all we have is energized people, we won't change much. We won't. It is energized people is a damn good start. That's what it is. It's, it is not the beginning, middle, and end. It, it's not even chapter one. It's just the prelude to chapter. It's the introductory comment to chapter one. And what happens is you get energized people and it can convince you that this is the change. And I had to learn the hard lesson that there are other people who are fully willing to wait you out on that. They are fully willing to wait out your energy, not just for weeks or months. They'll wait years until you lose your energy through failure, loss, depression, anxiety, whatever it may be to just the natural movements of life. If, if most of what we have is energized people, we're going to keep losing. Let me, let me be really frank. We're mainly losing. Right now, Republicans control the House, the Senate, the presidency, the Supreme Court. They control most governorships and the overwhelming majority of state legislatures. They run this. And we are about to come face to face here in just a few days of what that might feel like if Kavanaugh ends up being put on. He, he, that might happen. We are living in the consequence of having energized people and not a hell of a lot else. Because here's why. We made the mistake of thinking that being right on an issue means you'll win on that issue. Let me unpack that. We misunderstood that being righteous, we are right to fight for gun reform. We are on the right side of history with that. We are right to fight for black lives. We are, we are right to fight for women's rights in this, for, for just the basic human dignity. We are on the right side of history. But if you misunderstood that being right was enough to win, you're wrong. Because right now we are mainly right and losing. We are really righteous losers. <laughs> now listen. I would rather be a righteous loser than the alternative, than a, than, a, than a horrible, depraved winner. But I need you to understand that losing is not our birthright. Like, we are not destined to lose. There is a reason why they are winning. The first thing you need is energized people. Are you with me? But if that's all you have, 
you'll be energized and mainly lose and eventually also lose that energy. Just being frank, I've, been, I've lived through the pain of it. The second thing is you need people and they need to be organized. Now let me, let me dive deep here. We often have people and they are highly energized but barely organized. And there's something, listen, you probably know, like right now if I said, do you know what my profile picture looks like on social media? Half of you in the room would probably know, like yeah, you know me from my profile picture. I use the internet, I use Twitter and Facebook, I use email, but there's something about technology that has caused us to dumb down the level of our organization. We have, we have reduced being organized to email and phone numbers. Let me, I, I teach a whole class on what it means to be organized and there's so many powerful, profound examples that actually emanate from this zip code from Antioch, from Wilberforce, like just brilliant, powerful organizers in this peculiar piece of Ohio. This is a strange place, by the way. <laughs> like, it, I, mean that, I mean that as a compliment. Like, this is like a, a weird bubble in the middle of Ohio. It's like super woke, super conscious, but there's also horses <laughs> and other things. Like, it's, and if you go, 10 miles in any particular direction from this bubble, you are no longer in the bubble. It's altogether different. Here's what, here's what organized, listen, when you organize, get the email address. Get it, get the phone number. You can do a lot with that. But let me tell you what organized really looks like. Organized looks like you knowing the skills in the room. What are the skills in the room? A phone number doesn't tell you that. An email address maybe can help you learn it, but if all you really have is a Facebook page and a, and a contact list, that's not enough. You need to understand what does she do well, what does he do well, what does she do well, what are they trained to do, what are they passionate about, so that you can actually put people in their skill set doing what they do well. So we have, we have these energized people with tremendous skills and passions and gifts that they mainly aren't using, pretty much. It looks like knowing the skills in the room, it also looks like coming to understand who the people in the room know. I need to know, who do you know? Who could help us in this? Who do you know? You are, listen, you are bound to know, I mean, I mean this literally, you are bound to know somebody who can make a difference with almost any issue we're fighting for. Who does she know? But if all we have is a Facebook group, if all we have is a contact list, and you don't know what the room does well and who they know, you are blowing the greatest two resources you have. You are wasting them. We need to be energized, but we need to be as organized as we are energized.
Now, if you get organized people and energized people, you will get some change. You'll, you'll mainly get hints of change, shadows of change. You'll mainly come close to change. And I've experienced that. But if you can get energized people and organized people with the next two things that I'm about to tell you, you will win. And I've experienced that. I experienced it this month and last month and the month before. And let me tell you, it feels good. Winning feels so much better than losing. Do you know, Jay, what it's going to feel like when two years from now or four years from now, you actually win on the road? I don't just mean somebody gets elected. But I'm, talking about, I'm talking about the change that you are fighting for. And, and for you to know that you had something to do with that. You need energized people and organized people. But the next thing is, you need a comprehensive plan for change, follow me, that matches the magnitude of the problem. Now, this is where it's going to get very painful and personal. I've traveled to now nearly 200 cities. I, I've talked in over 40 states these past four years. I've hardly stopped traveling. If any of you have followed me on social media, my, my brother is literally, literally on his deathbed, may pass away this evening. And he's my heart and soul. And I, I came here because I believe in the next two things I'm about to tell you so much that I thought it was important for me to leave there to tell you this. If we don't have a plan that matches the magnitude of the problem, we'll be energized and organized and come close to a lot of change but we won't achieve most of it. Let me unpack it for a second. When I travel and ask people what their plan is, I, I mean this, I, I've had this conversation with organizers, activists, they mainly repeat back to me the problem. And it breaks my heart because I, I've come to understand that most of us are confusing the problem and the plan. And so when I ask people, hey, and I mean it, I mean no, I have no judgment. Hey, unpack for me what the local plan is for change. And what they normally repeat back to me is a beautiful. You're listening to the Antioch Word. Painful, expert narrative of pain. I mean, it's a rich, deep, personal story of loss and pain, and you mentioned it. As you traveled the country, all over the country, you felt that pain and saw it with your own eyes. And then I, ha and I sometimes I'll pause people and say, thank you for unpacking for me the problem. Have you all started working on the plan? And sometimes, they, most of the time, they'll say no. Sometimes they'll take me 
to a single page on a website with a few little bullet points. And that's it. Every now and then, I get an exception. But if I ask 100 people, 95 of them don't have a plan or don't know it. And a pl here's the thing. A plan is only as effective as the ability of everyday people to repeat it back to you. So even let's, let's deal, because this is real. Let's deal with gun violence in our school. I have five children in school, in elementary school, middle school, high school, and my oldest daughter just went off to college. So this, this is real for me. When I ask people, what's the plan to fight back against gun violence in our schools? You all know, but when I ask other people, they don't know. And here's where that's a problem. A plan is only as effective as the ability for everyday people. I don't mean the, the leaders. The leaders might know it, but we have to make the plan so accessible, so known that everyday people can repeat it back to us. That's not what we have. And let me say, the, the causes and the industries that we are fighting against, what they do, if we're talking about the gun lobby, or the gun industry, or, or the industry behind mass incarceration, those systems are so amazingly complex that they will completely bulldoze our little bitty plan. I've seen it. They will run that plan or non-plan right over. In the United States, there are 10,000 jails, 20,000 police departments, and in the 1950s, law schools lost touch with how many laws this nation has. We now think we have somewhere, somewhere between 5 and 10 million laws in this country. We literally are probably breaking right now multiple laws. At every, no, literally, experts will tell you over the course of the day, you probably break multiple laws every single day. I, and the government just chooses who they enforce those things against. We had a woman run for governor in, in New York, and she brilliantly, her name is Cynthia Nixon, and she framed the issue of the legalization of marijuana so powerfully. She said, listen, marijuana has been functionally legal for white people in New York since she was a teenager. She said, when we talk about legalizing marijuana, we're mainly talking about legalizing it for people of color because white people are never arrested for it. it. The law doesn't say that. It's just how the law is applied. And what I came to understand as we were fighting for justice, for Mike Brown, for, for Tamia Rice, for, for Eric Garner, for Freddie Gray, and for hundreds and hundreds of other people, what I came to understand is that we had energized and organized people, but our plans were not sophisticated enough for the problem. And so we made up in our mind that the people we, here was our functional plan. Our plan was to demand district attorneys to charge police officers with murder. And what we came to find out in Ohio, in New York, in Missouri, was that those district attorneys really didn't care what we demanded because we didn't elect them, they didn't care about us, and so we decided in late 2016, early 2017, that we needed a sophisticated plan to put new district attorneys in office. And, in, and since 2017, we formed an organization called Real Justice. And we have now, and many of you came up and told me that you're donors to our organization. And 
We have elected new district attorneys in six different major American cities, including just two weeks ago, we elected Rachel Rollins to be the new district attorney in Boston. And Boston is a very old city, and she not only will be the first woman to ever be district attorney, but she's also the first African-American that will be district attorney. And she's progressive and woke and powerful and bold, and it's going to usher in a lot of change. But it was only when we said our plan is being overwhelmed right now, we need a new, better, deeper plan. Your plan should not even look like, most of our plans could be scribbled on the back of a napkin. Your plan should look more like a pamphlet or, or, a, or a long PDF. It should look like a manual. And I don't mean an Ikea instruction manual either. Like it needs to be a deep, detailed, specific plan that you can say, here's our plan. So we found that if you have energized people, organized people, in a really sophisticated plan, you can start winning. Here's what's powerful. Andrew Gillum, who was just, uh, who just received the Democratic nomination for governor in Florida, he had energized people, organized people, and an amazing plan, but it gets to this last thing. It's money. Here's what's powerful about Andrew. If you get energized people, organized people, and sophisticated plans, Andrew was actually outspent by all five of his opponents. But his energized base, which was mainly young people, his energized base, his organized base, and his plans and policies were so good that he still, even though he was outspent, he still had enough money to win. Here's why I have hope. I have hope because when I look at our worst problems in America, we have not yet thrown all four of those things at our worst problem at the same time. We sometimes just throw energized people at our problems, or just organized people, or just policy ideas. But if you get all four of those things, if you get energized people, organized people, sophisticated plans, and the resources to back them up, you'll make change. Now there's, there's one organization, and it's painfully relevant for this room right now, that gets all four of those things well every single day. They get energized people, organized people, sophisticated plans, and a lot of money. It's the NRA. And here's how effective the NRA is. That in this country, over and over and over again, and it was referenced, those aren't just Democratic children being killed. Those are Democrats and Republicans. They're from all races and backgrounds. We hardly mentioned the shooting in Las, you referenced the shooting in Las Vegas today at a concert where over 500 people, less than a year ago, 500 people were shot at the same time. And guess what this country did about it? Nothing. And that's not, I want you to hear me, that's not on accident. That's because there is a group that's energized and organized and sophisticated and they spent $350 million last year, which is more than the top 10 civil rights organizations combined. And they're so good at what they do that in spite of all of the shootings, the people they have in their pockets guarantee nothing happens. We have to ask ourselves, what are we going to apply that to? I do want you to go vote. That's not enough. 
I had people call me and say, Sean, I don't know who to vote for, particularly in primaries. I had, I had smart, informed people call me and say, Sean, I'm in California. Who do I vote for? I don't even know. I had people tell me, Sean, I'm just voting for every woman. And I said, that's better than nothing. <laughs> I had people who's, I had a guy, I'm talking, I, I, I couldn't say his name, but if you heard it, you'd be shy. He told me, he said, Sean, I just went and read all the names and tried to vote for everybody whose name sounded black. <laughs> because he got in the booth and he didn't know. And, and I guess doing that is a little better than nothing, but not much. I'd rather you probably vote for every woman, but every woman's not righteous, all right? Every black man is not our friend. Every Jamal is not woke, okay? It just, that's not how it works. We have to be more sophisticated in how we do this. I want to close with this. I, I want to lend my energy. What's it called? Is it Amendment 1? Issue 1? That needs, that needs to pass. And it, listen, it's not, it's not perfect. It's a piece. It's a part. And what I have found is we're going to revolutionize and reform these systems piece by piece, part by part, bite by bite, law by law. And I'm seeing it particularly in California, but also in New York, where we, you, you, you won't, even when this bill passes, it won't change everything you wanted to change, but it's going to be this bill and another one and another one, and this was this bill passing will show us how to pass an even better bill next year and the year after that. But it has to pass. And I'll close with this thought. I heard somebody saying they wish that there were more people here. And I don't, I don't listen, I, that, I don't. I'm glad who's here is here. And I need you to understand something. There are enough people in the room right now and you can get so fixated on the idea that if 80 more people were here, 200 more people, that doesn't matter. What really matters is how dedicated are you and are you and are you. If, if the 250 of us that are on these grounds right now actually deeply committed to getting issue one passed, it would pass. In each, we elected a new district attorney in Philadelphia, in Boston, in San Antonio, in Portsmouth, Virginia, in Contra Costa County, California, and we never had this many volunteers. This was more, the, in this room right now are more volunteers than we ever had to win each of those elections. Like it, we have gotten in our mind that it's going to take, it will take thousands and hundreds of thousands of voters, but it doesn't take hundreds of thousands of volunteers. It just takes you having your mind made up that you're going to actually make a difference on this. So for all of you who are behind issue one, I don't just mean from this stage, I wanna make sure I give you all of my information and I'm gonna go hard with you here for these next couple weeks so we can push and push and push and get that passed together. <laughs> Listen. We're on to something. And I, I am more hopeful today, way more hopeful today than I was this time last year and this time the year before that, 
I, it's hard for me to quite put words on it, but I feel like change is coming. But I need you to understand it's going to be us that builds it. It's not, it doesn't just come by osmosis. We're going, to, we're going to have to be highly energized, highly organized. For whatever issue you, ca you care about, you need to help build the sophisticated plans, and we need to start putting change in your budget. For all of, particularly for you adults in the room, like, it needs to be a line item on your budget, in your Google Doc, where you are giving to organizations and people who are fighting for change. It needs to be as important for you as your power bill, as your grocery bill. Like, change takes money. It costs. And if, if it's not currently a regular item in your budget, I want to encourage you to do that because others are doing it. And they are fighting for us consistently and regularly and winning. But if we're going to win, we have to give it our all, all right? God bless you. Thank you so much for having me. Let's keep on fighting for change. We can do it. That was civil rights activist Sean King on episode three of Antioch College's first Freedom to Vote rally. I'm Mary Evans, the 2018 Miller Fellow at WISO. Thanks for listening to the Antioch Word. You can find more episodes of our podcast at WISO.org, on NPR One, or subscribe on Apple Podcasts.